Hi, welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm here with co-host John Micton. John, it's uh, two episodes in, in three days, I think, so it's a good effort, really. Yeah, we've been really busy. It's been nice. And uh, this is, you know, we've been doing these panels, you know, Dan, over the last few, actually, the last couple of years, sometimes we'll get a group of people. And those yeah. really are very popular with the one on small schools and tech integration. And the one on AI got a lot of listenership. So it's always Definitely. nice to have that expertise. And uh, Dan's been very humble because we've been talking before about the topic, which is libraries. And uh, Dan is keen to learn, and so am I, because that's often a topic that doesn't come in the forefront of tech and, and the topics that we talk about. But libraries are so critical and so important. And it's just so exciting that we have four librarians from around the globe and four different parts, time zones and everything, and they've just done a wonderful job of coming together. And we're really excited to kick off. So we have Tracy Fish who is from the International School of Luxembourg, and Jay Sher, who's at the Western Academy of Beijing, and Kim Tai Dickerson, who's at the International School of Amsterdam, and Marion, I forget the name of your school because you just moved. You were in Senegal in Dhaka, and now you are, just tell us quickly. I'm, I'm now at Branksome Hall Asia in Jeju in South Korea. Fantastic. So one of the things that I think over the summer, as you know, now it's the fall and we're kind of back in the, in the, the treadmill of work and schools and all the responsibilities, summer is often a time where people get to read. And I know that having uh, been involved with libraries as a supervisor and a tech director and working actually with a couple people in this room, and it was such a privilege, uh, I always remember at the end of the summer how many thousands of books go out just thousands of books in the librarians do such a great job of encouraging kids to take books for the summer wherever they travel and then in the fall all these books coming back just the physical movement is always quite impressive but i think one thing that you know if we think of the advancement of ai and social media and the issues of attention span and TikTok and a lot of the creative tensions that surround people sitting down and focusing on one book, it seems uh, appropriate and pertinent to really come and discuss this issue. And I really want to kick off uh, with the first kind of area is reading in the digital age of devices. And, you know, what does it look like in primary, middle school and high school? What are some of the creative tensions in developing this kind of reading engagements and really ensuring kids understand and are excited about reading, even though they have so many distractions. And I'm going to ask Tracy Fish to kind of kick off with that. What are some of the things that you have observed and what are the, some of the things that you're doing to kind of address those issues? I think Tracy might have frozen. Yes, yeah. she has. Does anyone else want to jump in? On, on yeah, somebody jump in, please. Yeah? Jay, I have jumped you. in. Yeah. So I have to say that um, as a librarian in the last couple of years, I've noticed that there are quite a few kids who invest their free time in YouTube videos and other social media ahead of reading. 
And um, we've noticed kind of a real reduction in the amount of students who choose to read in their free time. And so it's been an area of discussion in the last few years, and it's a real focus for us this year at the Western Academy of Beijing about libraries kind of trying to reinvigorate that culture of reading. And how do we really get kids when they have so many options during their free time to choose books? And um, one of the things we notice from the studies that we've read is that it really matters if somebody they look up to is a reader, right? Are their parents readers? Um, are their teachers excited about reading and talking about reading? Those kind of connections make a giant difference in how likely a kid is to choose to read when they have so many different options that they might consider. And so that's kind of the focus is how as teachers and librarians, we can get them excited about reading, but also help them to see that reading is a choice they want to make. And um, so that's, that's really on my mind this year, really partnering with teachers in ways that we can connect with kids and show them that we are readers and that we're excited about books and that we can be mentors for kids to keep them enthusiastic about reading as well. I love that idea of having uh, people that they respect or people that they look up to uh, demonstrating that and, you know, having books available in, in, in the home, et cetera. Tracy, you kind of signed off, but we're so happy to see you again. And Jay jumped in to kind of kick off. Please share some of your thoughts, because I know you've done a lot of work in primary school with this. Yeah, definitely. And especially working with parents. Um, we we spend an, an awful lot of our time in primary school really looking at different ways that we can develop a love of reading, a joy with reading. Um, we do get a lot of um, we get a lot of requests from parents who who have children who are maybe not readers or don't read much or don't read the books that their parents would like them to read. And so we've been doing some workshops um, with parents. We've been doing these for a few years now to just really get parents to understand um, what are the benefits of having a love of reading and, and showing them some of the research and, and the outcomes of, of those benefits. But one of the key points that is often missed is when you look at all the, the data that talks about, you know, you can very easily find all kinds of um, uh, studies that show the connections between academic achievement and children who read or um, success in life and children who read. But the key factor that is often missing is that it's not children who read, it's children who love reading, children who really enjoy reading. And so we spend a lot of time looking with parents at, at how how we can um, really nurture that love. And there is a wonderful book called The Joy of Reading uh, by Donalyn Miller, which librarians are very, very familiar with, but she splits down these kinds of, where, how do you get the sort of hooks into children? What are the different methods that create the love of reading? So it's not just making you read for 10 minutes every day or making you read five books in the summer holidays, but having children who really want to do that. Um, and so her book is a fantastic um, resource uh, for librarians looking to um, to try and increase that. But 
connecting to, to the tech idea, one of the phobias that parents, a lot of parents do seem to have is um, reading ebooks or listening to audiobooks, um, books, you know, that it, they're accessing through technology. And so we do uh, show parents that as well. We do, uh, you know, ebooks are real books. Um, audiobooks are amazing. And if the, the key focus is to to hook onto that joy of reading, however a kid likes to read, however they get their reading, whether that is, you know, under the blanket with a torch in the middle of the night reading or reading on an iPad or listening to audiobooks or whatever it is, you know, it's so important that they embrace that and encourage it and, and model it as well. You know, at the end of the day, Jay was talking about seeing role models read all the evidence suggests that in the home is the most important um, modeling that happens, you know. So if they see you reading and enjoying and loving reading on your iPad uh, at home as a parent, then then that will be the same, that the outcome will be the same for them. I think that's interesting how parents often associate, you know, when a child is on a device that even if they're reading, it's not considered the same reading as a book. And I have an anecdote where one of my children was on their phone a lot over the summer and I was quite critical and actually I re then I realized well they explained to me that they'd found a hack to get their favorite novels and pdfs onto their phone and they were actually reading a book so uh I think that's so true Tracy Marion what are your thoughts because you work also a lot in the high school uh, you're on mute Marion you're on mute Marion um I, can you hear me yeah yeah uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that because I know Tracy has worked in a primary library. That's correct, Tracy. Um, but in, in middle and high school, I find that the challenge is to uh, find the balance between free reading and the reading that the English teachers, um, you know, train the, train the students in, in analyzing literature and talking, uh, you know, doing in-depth reports on books. Um, I've always found it uh, quite interesting how there is a big difference between free reading by choice, whatever it is, whether it's a graphic novel or a, or a, or a, or a poetry collection or, uh, or just uh, Harry Potter, uh, as, as, as uh, com um, compared to the literature that they get taught in English. And I found that the English teachers sometimes um, underestimate the power of free reading, I find. I need to be careful what I'm saying because I'm going into a new school and they don't even know me yet. But uh, <laughs> So um, in middle high school, it's, it is really important, I find, to make sure there is time for the students to actually go and explore that free reading. And that happens with the guidance of the librarian. I found uh, it's always such a joy to do uh, book talks because if you do a good book talk, uh, everybody wants to read that one book that you just talked about all of a sudden. <laughs> Whereas if you didn't talk about it, it would just sit on the shelf and nobody would even look at it, um, which is uh, which is one of the great joys of um, you know of of promoting reading. I find, but you have to find the time to do it. And in in primary, you know, the students have. Uh, a fixed schedule most of the time where they come into the library and that time is available to the librarian and in secondary I find the further they get 
And I've got a real challenge coming up because I'm going to be high school librarian for the first time in my life. So I'm just going to serve grade 10 to 12. And that's going to be really interesting to see if I can find time to promote some free reading, reading for pleasure, reading for imagination, reading for, you know, being away from all the pressures of academic life. Kim, what are your thoughts on this? I know I think it's a really important point you bring up, having uh, many of us have had our children go through international schools and through the IB program. And I definitely can attest both of my children did very little reading while they were doing the IB because uh, one studied history and the amount of reading they had to do for history was just phenomenal. And I think that kind of they lost their interest because there was kind of this demand and this pressure to complete these more academic and required readings. Kim, what are your thoughts from your experience? Well, I think that a reading culture in secondary programs, um, it's to maximize that um, love, build on the love of reading that they come up from um, the lower school or the primary school or the elementary school. Um, that transition from grade five to grade six is a huge moment to keep that habit going. Um, and as they move into from the MYP, there's tons of, of room for independent reading um, grades for those are in IB schools. So the MYP program, uh, MYP one through five, especially in the personal project, that's a time for students to really expand in their um, interests and to really take on something of personal significance. So that can definitely incorporate reading. But what you're saying, John, about the DP, um, it's at that point where I am really reflecting on my own, on my own practice and that it's not, only, it's not, it's not just the, 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 the tension between pleasure reading and reading for content knowledge and expertise and um, knowledge creation. It's the function of reading in the brain. And um, what I have been doing and what I wanted to share today was I have been working with a research group. Um, it started in 2018 with a post from one of my colleagues in Asia um, about the uh, Marianne Wolf, who wrote um, uh, Reader Come Home, which is all about the reading brain and how we are building, we need to build actually biliterate brains. We need to have a digital reading brain um, and we need to also have a, a print or a deep reading brain. And how can we build that into our um, students? How can we build that into our curricula? How can we practice that at home? So I started working with the Reading Center um, at the University of Stavanger, Norway with my colleague Anna Mangen. Um, the University of Utrecht with my colleague Frank Hockemuller and my colleague Naomi S. Barron at um, American University um, in DC. And um, we have conducted multiple print and digital reading habits surveys, both at the International School of Stavanger and um, now at the International School of Amsterdam. Um, Naomi um, Barron, published a book that I think is a wonderful text to support understanding what readers and reading is um, in our hybrid learning environments, digital, audio, and print. Um, it's called How We Read Now, Strategic Choices for Print, Screen, and Audio. It has implications in, uh, for classroom um, environments, teaching practices, and of course, budgets. And as librarians, we understand that we are constantly in a 
a pull between digital resources and, and print resources. Um, and what I find fascinating about the reading um, research that I've been undertaking with adolescents, grades from 11-year-olds to 18-year-olds, when you talk about concentration um, in a variety of medium, so media, so you have tablets, um, uh, phones, laptops, and then you ask them about um, understanding as a separate consideration. The bulk of students will, will say very clearly that print is where they are able to understand and process information on a deeper level with more, um, less, it's less distracting, it's less um, overwhelming. You couple, you balance that with sometimes students say, well, print is boring. What I, hey, that's what I, interesting. What I think is we lose track of reading as we move into the secondary and we start calling it research and we don't even use the verb anymore. And so we have to help students have kind of a reading palette is what um, Naomi Barron talks about in her book. We need them to, like Michael Pollan, I know a lot of us are familiar with his about food, you know, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And she has kind of configured um, one, read more, focus when you do, and medium matters. And so for digital books, the skimming and scanning and the speed, hyper reading, as opposed to what happens in print, which is more of a contemplative, critical, analytical, maybe note-taking, maybe um, annotating, those kinds of things really help um, reading skills build over time. Um, so it works perfectly with both content reading and free reading. Great. Kim, could I um, just um, would love to jump in there. I think this is a, a really key um, problem that we have uh, as research specialists supporting yeah. teachers, um, because one of the most common um, requests that I get from teachers is to come push into classrooms to help students they don't their research skills have not taken hold or they're struggling with the research skills and when I drill down very often it is not about research skills at all it's about close reading and um, note-taking skills that can only really be fully acquired when they're doing the deep reading and so I'm really interested to hear about that research actually because it really um, resonates with what I see on a day-to-day -day basis in the in the primary school levels and when and I, I think it's I, a... go ahead Kim yeah please go ahead both Tracy all of all of us Tracy J and Marion talk about the role modeling piece of this and that dovetails exactly into this how do teachers um role model reading within the content area. It helps with that deep level of, of content and conceptual understanding. Reading for speed is not about concepts, it's about information. And we have to maybe make that very transparent. I think that's so interesting the way all of you are kind of defining that, that there are different types of reading and that they're, you know, deeper reading, skim reading. There is a lady out of UCLA, uh, Patricia Greenfield, and she talks about, she's done a lot of research on skim reading. And skim reading is if you think of your phone, you just get headlines and taglines and you just look at those, but you don't really click on the article. 
And she talks a lot about that, how kids are not being equipped for deep learning. So one of the things that kind of comes up as you are talking about this is this idea, and Dan and I have been focused on this in the different uh, podcasts we've done, is the whole advent of AI and chat GPT and kind of information literacy and misinformation and deepfakes. I mean, it's just so overwhelming and full compassing, but I think in many ways, if I was a librarian and I'm not, but I would be a little nervous thinking, okay, now I have some competition or how do I navigate this, you know, sudden presence of this artificial intelligence on devices and computers and the idea of writing? Because I know many of you uh, are doing extended essay support uh, or research support for different projects. And Tracy just mentioned her working with teachers and research. So those are all aspects that require definitely deep information skills. I'm going to ask Tracy to start off because Jay started on the other question, then we'll loop back. But Tracy, just even in a primary setting, because I, I think that's where your expertise has been recently, what does this mean suddenly having artificial intelligence present in the library, or is it not? I, I think um, one of the things that, that, that came out quite quickly after this initial kind of panic that sort of set in across across uh, uh, schools and libraries was that it that really not that much has changed and and for me one of the the key areas um, that that I kind of sort of safeguard if you like in my role is is having uh, children recognize uh, you know citations acknowledging the work of others etc and I think the IB um, has done a reasonable job of of making it clear what their expectations are and I think pretty much i feel pretty confident that we've got it covered in terms of what we expect the children to do when they are using ai um in various ways um and you know there's a whole big uh, question about whether ai should be used for research or chat should be used for research or using things like illicit you know librarians have been using those things for for a long time anyway but one of the things that has really struck me about it in 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 a, a tent either there is a tension there is we seem to hold students to very high standards of academic integrity and we make it very clear there's a very clear policy this is you know this is cheating this is not cheating this is allowed this is how you can use it this is the best way to use it you can use it for this or this or different tasks and and there's there's a ton of resources out there now that are helping teachers and and librarians um, use ai well uh, and effectively in the classroom but where i'm seeing the the difficulties is actually with them um, with adult use of AI in uh, a school environment. So we're uh, happy for adults to to use and not cite uh, when they're using something like ChatGDP, but we're, you know, really preaching to the children that this is um, this is what they, they should be doing. And so I find that quite interesting, but in many ways, it's kind of just going back to the same old, same old, that, that same old battle that we've always had, where we tell children you miss cite your images or use your images from a, a database like Britannica ImageQuest, make sure you're citing them. And, you know, we really kind of hammer that home to children about academic honesty and integrity, and it's part of the principles for the IB. Uh, but yeah, teachers all the time are using images all over the place and publishing them everywhere and not paying any attention to those kind of ethical standards. So in some ways, I feel as though, yes, you know, there was a kind of a blip 
um, where there was a little bit of a panic. But I feel I, I personally am mm. I'm really excited about a lot of the, the, the tools that are out there now for, for us to use. Nice. Marion. Um, I wish I could agree with you, Tracy. <laughs> oh, some controversy. I like it. Yeah, no, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm really happy that that's how you feel in your school. Uh, but the school where I've just come from, uh, it was not a blip. No, I think the panic is still going on. Um, we haven't been working with AI for ages, I think, because it only came out in November 2022. So it's, it's, it's been like six months and it may feel like years. And as librarians, we may feel like, oh, yeah, you know, I know Elicit so well now. This is the, the, the thing to do with extended essay. But uh, it's all so, so recent. Um, I found that in the last few months when I was working in my previous school, uh, the students were either uh, not using it at all because they were simply not on the ball with, with this IT aspect and, and, and AI, or um, they were smirking about it and trying to hide it and didn't think you could talk about this with your teachers. So it was my role to bring it out in the open and get through the smirks and the, and the smiles and then talk to them about how you use it. And then, of course, there are the teachers who either panicked, and this is what you were talking about, as you know, in your case, that maybe was a blip. Uh, in our case, it was sheer panic, really, really bad, um, and still should be, because I looked at some of the assignments that our teachers were setting students, and they're simply not holding up anymore. They can't, yeah. <laughs> they can't do these assignments because ChatGPT answers the whole thing in two minutes. And so... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've got an interesting thing to, to add to this. Um, this is some boots on the ground live from yesterday. So we have a good friend, a good friend of mine, son is staying, actually my godson, and he's at a, a school you'd all know, an international school you'd all know. And, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously a good friend of mine. I'm good friends with his dad. So he's, he's got no reason to lie to me or anything. So I wasn't going to pass any information on. But uh, he said he's using ChatGPT for everything. <laughs> everything. Every, every assignment, anything you can do, ChatGPT. Like I said, all his friends are using it for everything. It's interesting because, I mean, he maybe was exaggerating because, you know, teenage boys can, can be a bit kind of, you know, like that. But it was interesting. That was his reaction. But but I'm, I'm using it myself for everything as well. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's great. No, it's Why interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I, it? I, did a, I did a master's a few years ago as an adult and um, obviously, and I, I just before chat with GPT and I, and I know I could have simplified the research process and everything. And I could have done, I could have done my thesis in, in a quarter of a time, I think, even without cheating, you know, without like doing it the proper way, but just, you know, the speeding up all the processes. I think um, students, it's a low hanging fruit, isn't it? Because it's so incredibly easy to use. Mm -hmm. but, but I think once they've established on, and had some, some um, instruction and some guidance on all the different forms of um, AI that are out there and, and realizing that something like ChatGPT is, is incredibly useful for certain things, but there are some things it's really not useful and, and they have to really see it. They have to see the examples of the errors and the mistakes and where it can go wrong. And I guess to a certain extent, the kids are always a little bit ahead of us. And so maybe your godson's, uh, you know, that, that this kind of sweeping up has not started yet, but I would hope that it, it will soon. And then I think you're right. I think it's a golden, <laughs> a golden age of student cheating we're in right now. And the golden yeah. age will end quite soon, but I think we're in it. <laughs> Jay, you're in a high school setting. Some thoughts about this, because I think it's a very rich topic right now. 
Well, it is. And, um, you know, we, as the information uh, and technology people in the school, have been exploring it a lot. And I think what we really don't want to do is to make it a culture of fear around it. What we want to everybody to feel, teachers, students, is an understanding of it, an understanding of appropriateness of use. Um, exploration is good and um, really just trying to build a comfort level of expectations. So we do that in a lot of ways. I mean, we spend time with kids talking about the ethical use of information, where might AI tools be used appropriately, where might they be undermining what the teacher's hoping to understand and measure um, in students' abilities. Um, we try to educate the teachers so they feel comfortable with all kinds of tools they could explore with kids and use with kids because we don't want to pretend it doesn't exist. The truth is these tools are radically changing work and education going forward. So we need to help people adapt to the change. And there are appropriate uses, and we want kids to understand when they're using it inappropriately in a deceptive and tricky manner. So extended essays are a really good example of this research. There's a lot of great AI tools that I've been exploring with kids in the last year that have been really, really useful. The obvious one we're talking about at the front end was Elicit, which was a really good tool for helping students create good research questions and start the research process. Really interesting, engaging. As a matter of fact, I'd say kids had some of the best research questions I've seen because they had tools that helped refine them and develop them, but also great tools that interact with journal articles and help explain the complicated uh, uh, parts that kids really don't understand, especially in international schools where a lot of them don't have English as a first language, trying to build understanding that they then know appropriately how to put them in their own words because they understand what they're reading and utilize it and cite the original source and all of that. So. I guess what we're trying really hard educationally to do is diffuse some of the panic and build comfort levels so that we can continue to explore the tools in ways that they're meaningful and useful for kids, but also help them to make good judgment calls about when it's inappropriate to use certain tools and when it would be more appropriate to use them. And I think that balanced approach and also I think so often if we're not providing that professional development aspect, you know, everybody's kind of going in a bit blind and it's hit or miss or trying. And kids, of course, if they put a question and they get, you know, a page and a half of answers are good to copy that. And then on top it says by chat GPT and they don't notice it. You know, I mean, there are just so many things. And I, I really uh, so nice to hear how having that very thoughtful uh 
approach where you're really trying to get people to be comfort, more comfortable about it, and this minimizing or damping that sense of fear. Kim, you work a lot with middle school students, and I, I'm just wondering, Dan, I assume your godson is in that kind of 13 to 16 age range? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I'm just curious, you know, uh, middle school kids maybe have, uh, it's a little more difficult maybe to interact with that because maybe there's less capacity to self-reflect on kind of deeper research, or am I just uh, reading that wrong? No, I think that um, middle school students were partying in the corridors in the beginning <laughs> because it is, uh, and my, my son is 14, so um, he came home and tattled on all of them. Um, so that's one of the benefits uh, of the double-edged sword that is a faculty kid and a faculty parent. Um, and I think that what Jay is talking about is exactly what the IB's take was. It was a take of these are new sets of tools. These are not going to be prohibited. These are right now, of course, in terms of age, terms of service, conditions of, of use and all privacy stuff, um, that's coming and going. Like Elicit has now added language for 13 year olds on their site and their terms and conditions. I'm not sure how that goes with adult level decision-making or consent, but you know, they're trying, right? Um, I think where, where the, our first concern, middle school kids, it means then what we've known all along is that formative assessment in terms of the writing process, in terms of the reading process, in terms of the um, knowledge creation process is really, really important. And that takes time. That takes more time, I think, especially in the beginning when you're building routines, um, how to structure assignments and structure um, units and to assess learning in ways that ChatGPT just doesn't do it. Um, what I love about AI, generative AI in particular, is now we get the design cycle. It's right. It's like what happened with tagging with metadata. It's like everyone now knows what I'm passionate about, which is tagging things so that they link to other things, you know, so you have more discoverability, you have more retrievability. Now we have that with uh, prompt engineering. We have that with Night Cafe um, surreal images that you have to constantly tweak to get your image to look like the prompt you gave it. Um, we now have students reflecting, was that the best prompt? Okay, what do I need to do? I need to add some keywords here. I need to say, act like this, do this my way. This is what I want. Um, so that's all, that's all good. But I think it means we have to do things differently. And um, that's what I'm hoping for this year is the PD piece. Um, John, you talked about that. Jay, you, you talked about that. And um, Marion, you, you were struggling with that. You know, it's like, how do we raise, level up our colleagues um, so that we're all having a community conversation? And Jay, it sounds like y'all are at WAB. Um, what I like is that our investment in um, the Noodle Tools research management platform has really um, come to represent a great way for students to demonstrate their learning 
in a way that, um, yeah, maybe they're using ChatGPT to summarize an article, but they still have to then put it in their own words. They still have to cite that. Um, and over the summer, Noodle Tools just um, released their update, and I put a link. We'll put a link to it in the resources, um, so that you can now cite generative AI sources. Um, Noodle Tools has also the team, Damien and Debbie are great. The Abelox are great. And they have, they're really thoughtful about the teaching and learning that goes alongside um, these kinds of tools and how we can take our information and be what Tracy was talking about, the attribution, um, simplify that so that we know and the students know that we're paying attention to that. And it's not wrong necessarily if it's appropriate and if they have cited their source and if it meets the learning goals um, for the assignment, the unit or the student themselves. So, you know, I think it's kind of like when Wikipedia hit, everyone's like, ah, research. Um, kids are all right and we're gonna be all right too. Um, it's actually pretty exciting. They help me um, with subject lines on my emails all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. There's, a lot of That's great. there's a lot of productivity fun that will lower those barriers to using AI in the classroom if we can have more fun with it and use it to to help our teaching um, systems as well. And I like that whole idea that you're saying your kids are helping you with the uh, subject lines. I think, you know, in some ways, there's nothing greater when kids and teachers are working together and exploring together and sharing and having fun. There's that kind of collaboration that I think becomes very rich and mentoring that goes on. So really, through this theme, one of the, the words that percolates up is professional development. And I think, you know, one thing as librarians, you uh, some of you have scheduled classes, some of you don't. But one of the things is every day you're interacting with teachers, be it a primary teacher that maybe is looking for books on a certain unit, or maybe it's uh, an MYP or PYP or IB or even IGCSE or whatever program you're in, the librarian becomes kind of a, a critical center uh, of knowledge and also, you have to do PD. The problem so often is when do you have the time to do it? Do you given the time to do it? And what is the role of leadership in really ensuring that that information literacy? Personally, my biggest fear is this misinformation, is the deep fakes. And already it was so interesting the other day, they were showing pictures from the fire in Maui. And over 32% apparently of the pictures shown were actually not fires in Maui. Mm. They were fires in other places. And because they were more dramatic or mm. visually more interesting, they were being tagged as Maui pictures. And then people were resharing them, not by a few hundreds, but by millions. Mm. And for me, that's the biggest fear I have. And I think you know, I'm not sure schools understand how much work needs to be done in that area. And Marion, I'd like to turn it over to you to kind of kick off this topic of professional development. What are some of the creative tensions that librarians face? And why is it that maybe we aren't, aren't focusing enough on this? Yeah, I think it's interesting your example of the fires in Mao, because that's that's mis or malinformation. It's not actually deep fake. And this happens a lot that pictures of different events get captioned with something that it's not, but the pictures themselves are real. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's it's one of the things that I, I stress with my students all of the time that the only skill they really need in life is critical thinking and and to everything they see uh, which is almost humanly impossible I mean librarians make these mistakes as well it's happened in the past and we were like oh no but it's it's a human thing you, you cannot be critical to the point where you have to question everything or you just have to stop engaging with digital information um i found in terms of what's happened in the last seven months i found it was really good to start uh to start leading that wave uh, i found a lot with information literacy that teachers in the past always felt that they already knew enough they didn't they didn't need the librarian which was based on ignorance because they didn't know what librarians had to offer and when I saw them in their teaching, I knew that they needed um, that they needed a librarian to to teach information literacy and to learn about it as well. But now, with the uh, with the wave of AI and ChatGPT, I was able to actually take a leading role because it was relatively easy to stay on top of everything that was written and said about it. And so uh, quickly, uh, people started to see me as the one who knows which was great. Um, so I was able to do a workshop where I found that because of the panic, half the teachers were in a panic. Um, a, a quarter was like, yeah, we know what this is. And this is great. And yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then there was another 25% who had no idea what it was. <laughs> this is also quite interesting. You need to inform yourself. Um, and so by doing a workshop live, we also all learn from each other. That as a team, all of a sudden, we were aware of everything that's going on. So as a team, you start to think about how are we going to change our teaching? We have to work on changing our assignments. We have to do this all together. And uh, also um, some fear could be taken away. I think um, maybe Tracy mentioned that. Uh, students are, you know, embracing it as well, and not always in the most, uh, you know, in the most productive and, and um, academic uh, integrity way. And so we are now the ones who have to help our students. Our students are not ahead of us in this, I find. I think they're behind. I think they make terrible mistakes, and which can haunt them for the rest of their life. If you cheat on an extended essay, and and they found you've used uh, chat gpt you can lose your whole ib diploma and and they don't even realize what they're doing at the moment i think so i think it's hugely important that we uh, as information specialists lead our teachers and work with our teachers together to actually address this thing and and re respond as a team as well so that the students can see we all know what's going on and we need to work with this uh, like Jay was saying, you know, I think it's a great, and Kim said it too, it's it's a great tool and, and it's with us and we can use it in great ways, but we have to do it as a team with the teachers. One of the things I think that is challenging for librarians is that often you have to push into the teachers. It's not like teachers are lining up to get your wisdom or asking you to come into their classes. Often you have to go kind of market yourself. 
Tracy, talk a bit about that tension of where you are seeing a need, but the need is not being maybe demanded or not demanded is the wrong word, addressed or people aren't reaching out. It's not that they don't want it. It's just that they don't have time. What is that tension like and how does that manage that? Yeah, I've, I've had an interesting experience over the last few years because I've uh, I've been a push-in librarian on a, on a, a timetable where teachers book me you know, just in time, not just in case, to do those media literacy skills. And I've also taught a, a discrete library uh, program, which includes all that information literacy research stuff as well. So it's interesting comparing. And, and I think in an ideal world, the just in time, not just in case, is absolutely the best thing, especially in terms of um, you have, if, if I go into a classroom and I'm team teaching with the teacher, then I don't need to do PD and workshops with the teacher because the teacher's learning along with the students and the, 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 the buy-in is much better and it's really good for the kids when they're seeing teachers go, wow, I didn't know that, that one really, you know, you, there's lots of really fun activities you can do in terms of um, uh, reliability of information and, and, you know, getting the teachers to work on that alongside the kids is fantastic and it really makes them realize um, that, that this stuff is important um, that's wonderful but as, as John was saying that then really relies on the teacher recognizing that they don't know something or recognizing that they need to, to build some skills and uh, you know you don't know what you don't know I guess at the end of the day but so on the other hand, having a, a, a library lesson scheduled and a program that you go through with every single child, but usually there's no teacher there in, in that case. So you are then teaching, you are skilling children up in a lot of media literacy um, using digital technology, and they are then more skilled sometimes than that teacher because they haven't been present at, at any of, of that. Uh, that instruction. So I, I have found it, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword in terms of equity. I really happy that um, I want to teach. I want to have lessons and time with every child. But in terms of effectiveness and really kind of really embedding those skills into an inquiry program, um, it you know it works better when I can push in and and work with the teacher and the children at the same time. It's mm, much more effective. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Jay, your thoughts? Um, well, at the secondary level where you don't have scheduled time with kids, I think that a big part of my job is always finding ways to interact with teachers and kids. And that comes from offering myself up for every PD opportunity. If they're offering PD sessions, I'm in there, I'm offering something. If there's time in morning meetings with staff to give a little blip of some element that I know something about, I do that. I sit at lunch with teachers, just noticing what they're teaching and offering to come take things off their plate. I think that's how you sell yourself. You're always reminding teachers that you're there and that you know some things, some specialized areas, and can make their lives easier. So I can be in the room while they're working on research just as an extra body to go around and talk with students and make sure they're on track. And you're building 
that sense that people will spread the word. Oh, ask Jay, she'll come, she'll help. And I sell myself to kids at the beginning of the year. I said, you know, I'm not one of your regular teachers, but every time there's research, I will just show up. And I say that in front of teachers so that they remember that I will show up when those kind of lessons and information literacy lessons are going on. And it is, it's part of my job to constantly find those ways in, to connect with teachers who will sell me to other teachers, because I'm particularly knowledgeable about something that all teachers feel like they have to cover to some degree. And they forget there's somebody who will come in and help take some of that off their plate, but it's so much better for kids and for teachers when I'm there and I'm joining the conversation because I, I am the most knowledgeable about those information literacies. And it's good for all of us when I'm there. Excellent. And I like the way you uh, are having lunch. And I mean, I think, you know, what you're saying by the anecdote of lunch and walking around, it's just making yourself present, you know, and this wherever they walk, somehow you're there reminding them of research skills, which I think is just fantastic. I mean, it's a lot of work. That's the thing. And it sometimes can feel somewhat deflating because you're always available. Maybe not as many people are taking up on this great resource and this, uh, you know, uh, expertise that you've been describing to us. Kim, what are your thoughts? Um, I agree with all of my colleagues on the the strategies that that they are using, um, and that 100% embedded lessons with a meaningful task or outcome and hopefully more than one is definitely the best way for students to learn skills and um, to take on their their roles as learners rather than um, some kind of isolated curriculum that is just us in the library doing it and it has no real connection to a unit or to an assignment or um, yeah, so I, I agree with, with all of you. Um, I think that this year for me, um, I am going to be really working to find those moments in the school day that teachers are working together, um, whether as a grade level team, as a subject area team, as um, a middle school coordinators, uh, grade level team, uh, grade level leaders meeting or um, a high school steering committee meeting. I'm really um, working with my team because I am head of libraries for us to meet as a library team um, during the school day so that I am available on our Wednesday professional development or, or meeting days and our Friday mornings. Those are really prime time to connect with teachers. And instead of trying to fit our K-12 library program into those times to really make a time during the school day so that we can be there um, when our colleagues are working together, um, going to uh, planning meetings, um, watering the green shoots first, always. You know, Jay, it's like, Mary, who's the second, secondary Marion and Jay, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. make them, make them, so jelly if they think that I've gone in and I have created a library guide for them, which is, you know, a great tool 
um, to get students to role model effective resources and resource management and curation to them. Um, if I'm going to buy books for them and they're going to have a cart of books, I mean, it's very old school, but given the print um, and digital uh, reading minds and mindsets that we're trying to build in our students, you should see how excited the students get when here comes the cart of books. It, it builds, that excitement builds, but I need to go where the teachers are more. I have yeah, focused on students, yeah. I think that's so important. And I think that's, you know, what's nice is to hear that there's this commonality of the importance of doing that, but also the challenge of finding the slots of time and the airspace where you can do that in such a meaningful and purposeful way. What, as we're talking about this, libraries, you know, international schools are very unique. And one of the luxuries that we have, we always have amazing libraries. Because I know uh, when I actually met Jay many years ago and we were working together, we were talking about how in the United States, librarians were being uh, gradually, uh, you know, not... Uh, re-employed or libraries were closing down in school systems and that that's often you know a, a tension is that libraries are a cost and there's a lot of overheads and in some public school systems they're not as prominent because of these financial constraints that might have changed but I just remember that anecdote one thing is that whenever I go into international schools usually the most fun place to go is the library it's usually a big room it's got a lot of windows there's a lot of activity there are books the there's some technology there are comfy chairs that you can sit down and it's just it's just a very warm welcoming area how do you think over the years, and all of you have worked in many different international schools around the world, and I just feel so privileged to have you all here because you bring so much expertise and experience in so many different contexts, cultural and geographic. How are libraries changing, and what do what are some of the things that are making you excited, but also maybe a little nervous? And maybe I can start off with Kim. I'm excited about everything. I, I think that <laughs> Good, <laughs> that's good. I mean, I'm done. No, I'm excited about everything. Um, I know that the work that we do in libraries impacts students' lives, not at, only at school, but at home, not only their, um, their learning um, outcomes, but also their identities. You know, I think that... Um, Libraries have a huge role to play as a as a third space, a space that's outside the classroom, but it's also supporting the classroom. It's outside of home, but it is um, ideally a safe place where everyone belongs, where they can students can see themselves represented in um, every book talk. Students can see themselves represented in the curriculum, um, and the more international our communities are um, at ISA, I believe we're upwards of 60 different nationalities. But what we don't talk about enough is the intersectionality of our students, how race, um, class, sexual orientation, um, how these identity, uh, religion, um, you know, the, all the things that are who we really are, we, are, we contain multitudes. And um, it's much more than 
flags food and fun. It is, um, we need to understand not just um, in, what we do on International Day, but that every day in the library, students understand that they are recognized and that they um, can find a safe, compassionate space that is actively working to bring those voices in to our collections and into our lessons. Um, yeah, and so that is that is what I'm super excited about. I am excited as a mom of two Ethiopian children um, that their um, lives as black young people is more and more recognized in the publishing um, world. I'm 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 so excited that our LGBTQIA community is recognized. I'm so excited that um, my school in particular has really invested in print resources so that I can make that really explicit in our on our shelves. Um, and when kids come in and they see that, um, it's 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 the battle. It's the relationship that makes everything else possible. They're not going to listen to me about Chad GPT if they don't think I like them or that they belong or that they are um, worthy of respect. And so I think those relationships is what libraries do best. David Lankis talks about new librarianship is about your community and that's your collection. I believe that. Thank you for that. And I think it's so important, this idea that you brought up is that if kids don't think you're worthy and you respect them and you have uh, resources that represent them and that they can connect to, then how are you going to get anything else done? So thank you for that, Kim. Marion, your thoughts about kind of what are you excited and what yeah. might be some nervousnesses? Thanks, because I really wanted to add to what Kim said. I totally agree. And I think um, the school where I come from was in a country where homosexuality was illegal. Um, so as an international school, in all these different countries where we are with different cultures and different laws, uh, it was incredibly important within our community to have resources available. Uh, we had, it, we were like a little utopia inside a, a, a country where there were all kinds of terrible things going on. And within our walls, which were very high and they had barbed wire on them, <laughs> Mm -hmm. We had a utopia of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We had a gender-sex alliance. We had resources on anything you could imagine that would make the students feel, like Kim said, respected and, and worthy within the community. And I think that particular role of international school libra libraries is incredibly important in the different countries. Kim, you are in the Netherlands, is that right? Yes, but I also was in Ethiopia. Ah, yes, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. so I find that uh, as a librarian, you have a very important role to play to make sure that these resources are available, which is sometimes a challenge, but it's very I can important. imagine. And I think also what you're framing is this idea that you're in a cultural context or political context where the library is kind of an island, but on the outside, mm -hmm. that can't maybe happen. So. Yeah or something very powerful for the community, if they can tap into that. Jay, your thoughts? I think what's exciting about the library is when students feel a sense of ownership of the space. What makes me excited is when kids come to me 
and have ideas and are excited about things. They want to create a book exchange. So they design a whole thing for that. They want to, they have an idea for a promotion for the library and they go and create the display. I love that sense that that space is theirs and they feel like it's theirs and they feel like they can ask for things and ask for change. And that's that sense of community that the library really is kind of a core place that they all have ownership makes it such an exciting place to work and to be um, that I can't tell you how many people are like, I love your job. I think you must have the best job. And I believe it. I believe I have a great, great job that I get to interact and support teachers. I get to interact and support, interact with and support kids. And that there's this beautiful place where we come together and share ideas and people can feel empowered. It's lovely. We all want your job, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy. Yeah, I mean, I agree with uh, with 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 all of that. Um, I have to say that the my biggest uh, um, allies, if you like, for um, making sure that our collection is is very sort of DEI um, friendly is is our students. So our PYP exhibition group this year, that year just gone, we had 32 exhibition groups. It's a very, very big grade loop. But of those 32 exhibition groups, 18 of them chose to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion topics. And so they kind of, you know, came to the library with a real kind of um, sense of, of making sure that justice was being done to, to these, the, the, these issues. And they were working on the auditing and they, you know, they created book collections, they did some ordering, they were very, I felt very good that they were very um, happy to come and tell me where we were doing a great job and where we were not doing such a great job, you know, and, and <laughs> telling us what, what we needed to do next. And that's been really lovely, but also having them be involved in in um, seeing where we hit those walls. So uh, our collection is pretty good. And, and you know, they would, would tell you that, that we're doing a reasonably good job with the DEIA uh, collection development. Um, but our checkout of those books is not so good. And so that is, we're hoping to have the grade five take a lead on inquiring into why that is, what does it say about our culture and our community. Um, but those things can only happen when, um, you know, your library is a hub where it's a place where you can have that crossover between academic work and research and things that they're doing for, that's connected to their curriculum and their units of inquiry and things that they're genuinely just interested in for themselves or things that they want to do for pleasure. And so for me, that's the exciting time in a library is when you, you look around and you've got so much going on and they're all doing very, very different things with different focuses. And we've been so, so lucky at ISL that we've just got two brand new libraries built. Um, and so we were able to have a, a lot of say in the design of the library with that focus of the library as a hub and a multi-purpose space and not being a book depository, but being a real kind of heart of, of the school. So, and we are just now starting to see in the upper school that library opened last year and, and it, it was a magical transformation really in many ways. Um, and the lower school is opening um, uh, next week. And so we're hoping to see some 
some of that stuff really really taking off but but we already are i mean the, all of the um all of the new stuff induction this week took place in in the brand new lower school library because the space has been designed to make it the nicest place in the school to do that and the most functional place in the school to do those kinds of things so that was very exciting for us starting off the the new week i think yeah, that's I, a lovely I, uh, I just think it's a lovely way of getting new staff to be in the library as the first point of reference when they uh, come into a school. I love that, Tracy. Yeah, excellent. Sorry, somebody just said something and I interrupted them. Go ahead. No? Okay. So believe it or not, we've been talking for over an hour and I am going to steal something from my favorite po podcaster, Ezra Klein. Uh, he always asks his guests to share two books that they think somebody should read. And uh, we'll just go with one. He actually asks three. And I'm just going to ask for one book that you think faculty should read uh, before the end of this academic year. So uh, I'm going to just let who would like to start? Who has a book at the on the tip? Of, Tracy, thank you. Yeah, so I'm just reading at the moment. Um, I'm going back to teach history in the classroom for a year. Um, and I am reading a book called Empire Land by Satham Sanghera. Um, and it's it's mainly a, a journey about uh, Britain's imperial past. Um, but it's become such an exciting um, revisionist period of history that, um, you know, that book, it, it's an amazing read. Um, but that book is is now uh, going to be informing uh, some changes in the, in the English national curriculum. So I'm very excited about that. It's a great book and I highly recommend it. Great. Jay, I know I'm putting you guys on the spot, so sorry. Sorry, Marion. <laughs> <laughs> so we're uh, very focused on DEIJ ideas right now. And if I were going to encourage everybody to read something, I think I would start with Every Heart a Doorway, which is a lovely little novella, but it's about queer found family. And it's about people with very, very different world perceptions that manage to come together and support each other um, through adventure. And I think it's a charming and lovely book. Wow, thank you. Kim? I think that um, maybe they won't all read it all, but I think the chapters in how we read now, strategic choices for print, digital, and audio is mission critical, especially with um, generative AI. So I, I think that we need to think about how kids read and why they read. Thank you. Marion, we're putting you on the spot. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, um, yeah, you should have asked me before, so I could have thought about this because my mind's gone completely blank. But one of the books that I read that I thought was really interesting to talk about, to think about AI, was um, Clara and the Sun by, oh, yes. I forgot his name, uh, was it Ishiguro? I think Clara I was Ishiguro. It's, it's a relationship uh between it's an about and a the relationship life. between a robot, a serving yeah, robot, and a human. Yeah. It is and, an Ishiguro. And it makes you really think about uh, yeah. where is this going yeah. to go? Is, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
where is it going to go? And the idea that fiction and reality is beginning to catch up on each other. And we're right in the middle of it as, as educators, because we're educating our, you know, our adults of the future. They may be living like that in the future. So that's... Well, interesting. In the last two days, Google has announced they're going to be releasing a deep mind personal coach and therapist. So uh, AI therapist. So uh, Clara is more real than we realize. Anyway, Tracy, Jay, Marion, and Kim, thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom and expertise. And it's just so such a privilege to have four librarians in the same room, because I know so often uh, librarians often are, don't have big staffs so or you don't have big teams. Usually they're one or two or three people in schools. And uh, I know each one of you have done such amazing work in your respective schools and uh, are very active in the library groups. And I've had the privilege and honor of working with Jay and Tracy. So just nice to catch up again. Thank you. I want to remind our audience, uh, our guests have done a wonderful job in the show notes. Uh, go in there. There are links and all kinds of information. So definitely do spend some time and look at what are some pointers and some places they have encouraged you to explore further uh, with the conversations we have. But uh, on behalf of the International School Podcast, thank you so much, all, and look forward to uh, catching up sooner than later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.